Chapter 1, Wayfair welcomes you to the Waberhood. Our hero, Titus Burgess, ambled down the stylish street of an enchanting utopia. A woman waved from a chic lounger. Welcome to the Waberhood, she said, where Wayfair helps everyone create a home they love. Titus stared in awe. Bohemian Boulevard, Trinsetter Terrace, Mid-Century Circle. Titus, hmm? you're reading the Wayfair catalog. Oh, you'll love Chapter 2. Wayfair's fast and free shipping saves a potluck. Wayfair, every style, every home. To get the Crime Writers on After Show right now, go to patreon.com slash partners in crime media. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is Crime Writers On. Crime Writers On is the original true crime review podcast that digs into true crime, pop culture, other podcasts, and this week, a string of fires plagues Southern California. The arsonist is someone authorities never suspected. We'll review the podcast Firebug. Then a French teen vanishes in a case that gripped the nation. We're looking at the dramatic adaptation of the crime story in HBO's Letitia. And by nation, we mean France. Joining me to get that done and more is true crime author, TV journalist, and host of the These Are Their Stories podcast, my husband, true crime co-author, and love of my life. Hello, Kevin Flynn. Hello, Rebecca Lavoie. Also with us is private investigator, certified pet detective, resident cat lady, and author of Dead on Deadline, the best-selling novel at Exeter's Water Street Bookstore, birthday lady, Laura Bricker. Hello, Laura. Hello, Rebecca. And um, for my birthday, I did not get one more cat. Congratulations. No, thank God. Thank God, Ken said. Um, but yeah, Watersheet Bookstore, it's where it's at. Thank you, Crime Writers on Nation. It has been amazing and our bookstore is very happy that Dan Chartrand may be able to get a haircut now. The congratulations, Dan. And finally, our captain of woke cynicism, the author of the novels known as the City Trilogy, host of the Strange Arrivals podcast, and our Patreon deep dive book club podcast host, Toby Ball. Hello, Toby. Hello, Rebecca. Well, we've got a lot to get through tonight, and I really want to get to the after show taping. So I propose that we just go ahead and start our first review. What do you think, Kevin Flynn? What was? Are we obligated to do a bunch of nonsense before we that? We aren't, and the dog is really very excited. So let's just get it done. All right. Okay, sure. Let's All right. Do it. Everybody, let's go. Leading off. Every fire has a starting point. The layers of soot, the torch furniture, the char patterns on the wall. All of it leads back to a point where the fire started with a spark. In the 80s and 90s, Southern California officials were dealing with a string of seemingly unrelated arsons. Some were wildfires, some were set in stores during business hours. All investigators knew was the arsonist was bold and the fires were sparked with simple yet sophisticated devices. When the cigarette would burn down, it would light the match and that would ignite the grass. So it was like a time-delayed device. It would give him five or ten minutes to leave the scene. Around the same time, a manuscript turned up for a book titled Point of Origin. It's a fictional account told from the view of an arsonist whose fires closely match the area's unsolved cases. Is the book a veiled confession by the author whose identity stuns investigators? Every year we arrest a firefighter somewhere in the United States for starting fires. We're looking around. 
I wonder if it is one of these guys. In the new podcast, Firebug from Truth Media, host Carrie Antholis examines the whodunit behind the hunt for the pillow pyro. He also recalls his past interviews with the man convicted and a new two-year telephone relationship to further explore his culpability in the fatal fires. Spoiler alert, we are going to be talking about plot points from Firebug. So if you want to remain spoiler free, go to the estimated time code in our show notes to hear our thumbs up or thumbs down review. Now, Kevin, uh, we hear in the podcast this was actually an HBO film. Yeah, I a, remember it. Yeah, A bad one with a good performance by Ray Liotta. You actually remember watching this movie? Yeah, the crime was familiar to me because I remember seeing that movie. I don't remember a lot about the movie except for this weird fantasy scene where when, uh, I guess we can give the name away, when John Orr is arrested, that he takes out all these guns and he starts shooting his way out like Mexican standoff style, like throwing his body around and shooting, but it was like all in his head because he makes shit up. Anyway, the part that I do remember was that he was a, you know, a fire investigator who set the fire. So as soon as this, and that he wrote the book. So right from the very start of the podcast, I knew what case it was. And I knew this is case has been covered in a lot of different podcasts and, and on TV in a lot of different ways. So it's not a secret. So I knew a case we were talking about. But that doesn't mean that you can't enjoy the podcast or get something out of it. Right. So, Toby, a lot of people, um, just because of what I do, reach out to me with like ideas for their podcast, like what should I do with this thing, whatever. Lately, there's been sort of like a pattern that I've noticed. And this podcast to me sort of like falls into this lane where like it's a journalist who has been a journalist for a long time and they have a story where they have like old tape of maybe something they wrote a long time ago, but it's like... I talked to this guy a long time ago and I have like this 20 or 30 year old tape and that means I should make a podcast even though maybe they also wrote an article like 20 or 30 years ago. What do you think of this idea of like repurposing tape maybe of something that you already wrote a long time ago just because you have the tape and making it into a podcast because that's kind of how this feels to me. Yeah, I mean, I, I feel the same way that it's sort of like, you know, a magazine article read aloud for you in some ways with, you know, instead of having quotes from people, you have the actual audio of them talking. I, you know, I'm not really opposed to the idea of using old tape that you've got or doing old stories that you, you have. But I think you lose something when the idea is I'm just going to replicate a magazine article in audio. You know, good podcasts wouldn't make good magazine articles, right? There's a different way of arranging it. You have to do different things to keep people's attention. There's different ways, like I think, and I think that this particularly comes into play in this one, which is you have to be able to differentiate between people who sound a lot alike on tape and have similar roles, unless it just doesn't matter. But I, I listened to this and then I was listening to this one called King of Crenshaw, which is Julia Lowry Henderson's new podcast from ESPN, which to me wouldn't make a good magazine article, but it makes a great, great podcast. And I wish there was some more of that in this, just the way you set things up. I felt like there were some missed opportunities. I felt like there were times when I was like, who is this talking? Like, is this guy an arson investigator for this or for that or for the other thing? And where does he stay in the hierarchy? So anyway, I don't know. I kind of, I kind of wish there had been a little more imagination yeah. in how they put this together. Well, we should mention that this wasn't actually a magazine article that this guy wrote. It was a rejected right. story that he didn't get to make. 
And we actually hear the it was woman. An article or a documentary? It was a rejected documentary that yeah. he did not get to make. He had been the journalist, though. Like he had right. been covering it. He, he had just didn't go to the next level. Correct. He was, and the woman who hired him didn't let him make it. And he did end up working at HBO and working on the fictionalized version of it. But he had all the tape of his real interviews. And so he basically had the tape. And I guess the point I'm trying to make is I have been pitched by guys it's always by the way it's always guys who are like i have tape so i should make a podcast and i just find that to sort of be an interesting phenomenon and like i'm not saying there's anything wrong with this idea of you know being pitched you know or or pitching because you have tape yes that is a reason to do it but also what struck me here was that it didn't make it the first time so you're doing it again even though the story's already been done anyway all that being said Laura, your husband's a fire chief. He knows a lot about arson. I'm guessing you had some interest in this basic story, right? Oh, absolutely. And I think I'm a little more forgiving just because I feel like we've listened to podcasts on so many different topics and so many, many motivations for crimes. And we haven't heard a lot about this psyche behind the arson thing. And I and I have heard a lot about it over the years. You know, I remember the first fire where I learned about the sort of thrill that arsonists seek from their their crimes. And it was downtown Exeter. And I saw one of the detectives and I was like, what are you doing? And he had a video camera and he was down and he was filming the crowd. And then he's like, well, usually the arsonists come back to watch the fire. So we film the crowd so that we have the tape ahead of time so that later we can go back and see, like, who's the person who's not to be, but he looks happy to be watching the fire or the person who looks like they're maybe not as upset as the other people. But they always would go out. So the police would actually go out and and film the crowds. And so I feel like this podcast for me, even though there was storytelling issues, it definitely captured that sort of angle of investigations, which is something I don't think we hear about a lot. So, Kevin, this is one thing you said to me about this podcast, but this was sort of like a criminal type you hadn't heard about before, was sort of inside the mind of an arsonist, right? This isn't something we see a lot in the true crime podcast genre. It's a lot of serial killers, and then we get a lot of con men. Arsonists, not so much. But there's still interesting things about the pathology and about the way they commit their crimes. And towards the end, somebody makes the connection that how similar they are in pathology to serial killers, the serial arsonists. And so just sort of another way of of looking at a different kind of criminology. And so that's kind of what makes it new. And one of the things I did like about the podcast, like I said, even though I knew a lot about like where it was going, was that it does advance like a typical mystery where it's told in a way where, you know, a little bit is revealed at a time. To quote Steve Martin, you peel the onion. Hmm. Or should I say Martin Short? Um, But it advances a little bit by bit. It's a whodunit. And, you know, even if you don't know where it's going, there's still a little bit of mystery to it. So it's, it's different in that way. It's not like a whole bunch of other things that we have out there that we've heard of. Hmm. I will say you told me uh, earlier today that, you know, listening to this, it did feel like new to you. Yeah. And I was like, it doesn't feel new to me because when I was in high school, I. Oh, Oh, I I know what the conversation was. Yes. You were talking about I I said that what was interesting about John Orr was that, yeah, his profile, it sounded like it was different from the typical arsonist (laughs) where it was somebody who. They a say loner. a loner yes. and not social and yada, 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 yada. And I was like, no, because when I was in high school, 
I played in the marching band for my local volunteer fire department. A lot of the kids in high school marching band did because it was a chance to play in another competition marching band. Yeah. Because we got to go around the state and like play our instruments. But you had to play with firefighters. No, we actually was all high school kids playing. But there were a couple firefighters, but it was mostly just another chance to play our instruments and like, you know, be stay in hotel rooms and be in high school and like be What does this have to do with firefighters? So we got to hang out at the firehouse and rehearse with Ah. all these volunteer firefighters in my town of like thirty five thousand people was all volunteer fire department. The dudes were all pyromaniacs. They were all (laughs) very social, very fun, very dynamic dudes who fucking loved fires, totally got boners every time there was a fire, loved drinking beer, and Um, loved sausage and peppers. Like, that was all I remembered about all the volunteer firefighters from my town. I'm trying to raise my hand, but I've frozen up again. Well, I don't want to say this is all firefighters everywhere. I'm just saying... No, 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 because I want to tell you it's true. It's not an uncommon... (laughs) What I'm saying is I didn't hear this and think... John Orr is the only firefighter in the history of the world. No. <laughs> Love <laughs> fire. I want to tell you, there are different levels of this. And when Fireman Ken and I first got together, the reason that we first got together is because all the firemen used to come to his house and have these big bonfires. <laughs> <laughs> Man, I wish I could put water on that. Oh, my God. This could get us all in trouble, but I'm going to tell you the story. So they used to come and because everyone knows it. So everyone would be like, oh, so-and-so, like, he got a new girlfriend. We got to burn his last mattress. And they'd, like, bring it over. <laughs> and they dump it all in this pile behind the barn at what is now our house so and it was all innocent early in the evening and then about like 12 or one o'clock in the morning what happened one time it was unfortunate because they started making like acetylene uh spray paint bombs and like setting off these like bombs over the bonfire oh you can't see my hand because i'm frozen but anyway so there's a fine line there's a fine line between being a firefighter and being like hey this is kind of fun to have a little bonfire in our backyard to being like i'm gonna like be a you know destroy your property yeah but they don't go into a business during business hours and light fires to the most flammable thing yeah that is certainly different i was very surprised toby were you to hear that racks of potato chips were uh so incredibly flammable potato chip arsons had been a problem in la county we were having a series of fires in uh, supermarkets primarily and potato chip racks inside the stores and uh Potato chips burn readily. Yeah, I had not I had not really actually given that much thought before this podcast. You never knew that? No, Laura, not everybody in the world knew f- potato chips were that flammable. <laughs> <laughs> or the bags. So I learned about this when like Ken and I were first dating. Mm-hmm. Um, he had friends at the fire marshal's office. And, and, and then like also like a lot of the firefighters when they went through basic arson training, everybody learned about this potato chip thing. And I was like... So everywhere I went, I was telling people about it. And then I felt so smart when I became a defense investigator and went to my like arson training to help defendants accused of arson when I was like, do you know about the potato chip thing? And they're like, (laughs) (sighs) and I'm like, I'm dating a firefighter. Yes. V patterns seem to be more important. Yeah. But isn't that fake, the V pattern thing? No, it's not fake. No, it's not fake. It's the point of origin. Okay. It's the point. Yeah, exactly. But I always thought the arson investigation thing had been debunked. Some of it had been debunked. I thought the V pattern thing was one of the debunked things. No. No? No, that's, think of a V. Keep pointing going down towards the point of it. That's where. Hasn't some of the pattern stuff in arson investigation been debunked? Maybe some of it, yeah. Are you talking about like the Cameron Todd Willingham thing? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, where he got put to death for 
killing his kids when it was turned out to be a um, space heater fire. Yes. Mm. So, Toby, I have a question for you about a production thing in this podcast that made me crazy. So I'm guessing it made you more crazy. Yes. Do we need to be signaled every time we're being read from a passage from a book that it is a passage from a book? Do we need to be signaled that by listening to somebody typing and then somebody reading very slowly? Aaron sat at his dining room table, putting together several of his devices. The morning sun was shining brightly, but the Santa Ana winds had died down. Yeah, it's like text to voice. <laughs> um, there's a lot of like weird sound effects that seem unnecessary. Like he knocked on the door. <laughs> um, Good job, you know, Toby. <laughs> and there's just a lot of random stuff like that. Um, it seems like at the production meeting, Toby, that they're like, well. There's so many great things we could do. Typewriters and sirens and, uh, and we're just going to give the sound editor so much to do. Right. Let's get an IBM Selectric. Well, and- otherwise all they have is Carrie and his 30-year-old Dave, right? Well, no, they got some good interviews. <laughs> I did, yeah, I mean, that's the thing. It's that they don't really add much of anything other than just it just seems kind of random when it happens. As Kevin was just saying, like, I think that they've got a lot of good interviews and stuff. I just feel like they left a lot of interesting stuff. Out. I would have been really interested to hear more about arson investigations mm-hmm. since we've got all these arson investigators. And I thought getting into some details of that would have been super interesting. Or what it looks like when you go into a place that's been burned and you're doing the investigation. What does that look like or smell like? Or like wh- what what's that experience like? And just even the way these different arson investigators related to each other, or like, are there disputes within the community about things? I mean, you had a little bit of a sense of like, I was with that guy a lot, or that guy kind of mentored me, but then I couldn't for the life of me when that was explained, because you don't know who any of these people are, or who the suspect is when you're going through that, when they finally like kind of point towards or as being the guy, it's like, so was he the guy who was the mentor or the mentee, mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. was he working with this guy or that guy? It was just all... I just kind of felt like there was a whole lot of other stuff that would have been interesting to learn about and would have given some context to a lot of the stuff that was going on, which without that context, I was just kind of like, well, I'm not sure. So I'll just kind of roll with it. Mm. Um, But it just kind of meant that the time they'd spent on that stuff uh, was sort of lost, at least on me. You were looking for a feud between subcultures. (laughs) That would have been that would have been ideal. I will cut it some slack because, like, how often have we actually heard about a legitimate big scale arson investigation like this in all the years we've been reviewing podcasts? I I did like the the one moment I liked that came closest to what Toby wants was so, first of all, it made me fucking crazy that Carrie, and this happens way too often in podcasts like this, where the person telling the story, and I don't want to say, it's usually a man, but it usually is, is way too credulous and is like, I don't know, I kind of think he might not be guilty when it is so fucking obvious that the man is like lying his ass off. At the time, I was shocked that she thought that because I definitely hadn't made up my mind. I thought he was a little strange, a little too conscious of his story and explaining things away, but I was not sure he was guilty. 
But when you have the other arson investigator come in and he's like, no, he's totally fucking guilty. And here's why he lied on his police entrance exam. He lied on this. He set a bunch of fires on his way to high school growing up. He's this, he's this, he's this. I loved that guy. Like that is the source I would have wanted to hear a lot more from. Like that was a really good moment for me. Yeah, I tell you one thing that's missing that I would really like to know, and we've heard nine of the 10 episodes, so maybe this comes in the 10th episode, is in the book that he wrote, Point of Origin. How does that end? How does he envision how the arson spree ends? Does the arsonist live forever? Does he get caught in a certain way? What is his vision? He's the best orgasm ever. And then he walks off into the hills and dies in the fire. (laughs) But don't you see that says a lot about his pathology, his criminal motivations, the way he sees it ending? I thought that would be really fascinating. And it might also tell why the fuck did he write this book and hand it to somebody. What do you think? Like, just fictionalize a little something. I think he wrote it for the recognition because that's the whole thing. He loves that. Like, yeah, he loves, I mean, not only does he love the recognition for his own sexual gratification, but he loves the recognition for being the best fire investigator that everybody else comes to because he finds the point of origin before like the ambulance even gets on the scene for crying out loud. Sometimes what happens, like we've seen this in serial killer cases where the police don't respond fast enough and then the serial killer needs the attention. And so they start sending letters to like a TV station or something or like writing to reporters. And I feel like it was the same sort of psychology going on here. I mean, do you guys agree? Yeah, it's just like the little kid, okay? So- Children do this. I did this. When I was six, I found my Christmas presents, right? Mm -hmm. And my mom had bought me like a red velvet dress. I found them like a month before Christmas. Did you burn them? No. Oh, it's going in a different direction. But I found my Christmas presents and I couldn't help myself. I like next morning at breakfast was like, you know what I really want for Christmas is a red velvet dress. <laughs> like when you're serial a- killer. <laughs> no, but when you're a kid and you do something wrong, you like tip your hand like you can't mm-hmm. help it because like you're just really fucking bad at being like evil. Like you're just bad. Like really like people like this who are like narcissistic. Like they have to, you have to let people know. It's like how kids are just really like, they have no governor on their badness. You know what I mean? Like that's what like got people like this are like, like narcissists are the same way. They're basically six-year-olds with no governor on their their personality. Well, I, I, and I understand I didn't used to know what a governor is, but I do know now. (laughs) Because you have a moped that only goes 35 miles an hour. It was 39 now, Rebecca. <laughs> Can I point out one other thing that I thought was good about the podcast? Sure. Usually when they come in with the family perspective, the people who knew them best, right? Kind of checking a box here with, oh, you know, who, you know, trying to get some background on them. It really doesn't affect the narrative or really, inf- it doesn't really inform the crime so much. But I thought the ex-wife story about oh. the stalking I thought it was enlightening because those incidents corresponded with a bunch of fires that nobody attributed to Yeah, I loved her. When he showed up at the door and said, hey, there's a fire right over there. Just wanted to check on you. I said, oh, we didn't even know it yet. And pretty soon you would just hear fire trucks going from everywhere. John would show up and then fire trucks. Other than just sort of like shining a light on the guy's inside, that whole story about his controllingness and how fire played into that, 
I thought was really, really enlightening. I felt like they could have deployed that a little bit earlier. Yes. Perhaps, yeah. I completely agree with you. Why not? Why because, not have had that sooner? Because yeah. we got the story about the Hills fire with those girls who like had to run away and like their feet got burned and they had to save those yeah. triplets. And it's like, you think about the impact of what this dude did when he was raging and like, yeah, I mean, the fact that it wasn't paired with an impact, I completely agree with you. That story should have- I think it's probably because they were holding off on- John Orr as being the arsonist yeah, until the but, fifth episode, maybe. But, but it was I don't a public know. story, so I, I do feel like that they should have like not held. I, I completely agree yeah. with you. I, I think that yeah. I mean, I think it goes kind of back to like a little more imagination in how they kind of portrayed this stuff. And again, so, I mean, I didn't know who it was, but it quite honestly wasn't that surprising unless it was going to be somebody who you'd never met before. There was like three or four people who it possibly could have been. Like maybe not having that be the suspense thing. Because there's a lot there between the like just natural interest in the arson stuff, the book, which is weird. And, you know, hopefully, again, like Kevin said, we'll get to more of it later. But if you'd added like this other personality stuff a little bit earlier on to kind of contextualize the arson things, I think that might have been the way to go. But, you know, you, you review what's there, not what you want to be there. I agree. I think that they took the, the fact that this guy had tape. And they tried to make a suspenseful story, like, let's tell the story as if no one knows what happened kind of thing. I don't think they needed to do it that way. I think that was a decision that they made, and that made them hold back the most interesting stuff. And they, they could have fleshed that out way more, and that could have been the heart of the story. I completely agree with you. All right. Well, I think we should do what we do. Let's let our listeners know, should they check out the podcast Firebug? Laura Bricker, I'm going to start with you. Of course, you're married to a fire chief. I'm yeah. very interested to hear your review of this podcast. Thumbs up or thumbs down for Firebug. What do you think, Laura Bricker? Well, I can tell that everybody else didn't like it as much as I did. And perhaps I just liked it because it was a fire-related podcast. And we don't hear a lot of those. I mean, we hear a lot of different motivations for serial killers and crimes and everything. And I really can't remember when we've actually had an in-depth arson podcast or documentary that we've watched. So, I mean, there were issues like, yeah, okay, I can come up with ways I would have liked the story to be told differently. But overall, I really felt like it gave a really good insight into the psyche of the motivation of arsonists, which is something that I've heard over the years from police that I know, from Fireman Ken, from trainings I've gone to as a defense investigator. So I thought it gave a really good insight into why people set arson fires also, I hope it instills in everyone a little fear of potato chips. So I'm going to go thumbs up. And uh, Fireman Ken went three quarters erect. <laughs> oh, God. Hey, Lord. his mother listens to this podcast. Oh, <laughs> Dear Lord. Toby Ball, what do you think? Must thumbs have been up? some fire. Toby Ball, what do you think? Thumbs up or thumbs down for Firebug? Uh, I actually, I liked it more probably than it sounds like I did based on what I've been talking about. Um, I thought some of the descriptions of what was going on during the fires was pretty effective. There's some good journalism. Again, I think it is just a little bit of a failure of imagination and how it was deployed. So I'm sort of, I'm really on the fence on this. Uh, I would give it a thumb sideways uh, with maybe like edging up a little bit. So yeah, so sort of a thumb, thumb barely up, but definitely not down. Kevin Flynn. I don't have an emoji for barely. It sounds like three quarters erect, if you ask. Yes. yes. All right. It uh, sounds like the fire was smoldering, but not blazing. Not nah, yes. 
look, I liked it. I don't think it was perfect podcast. Um, it was perfectly suitable, but I did enjoy what the story was. Certainly the last couple of episodes, if you if you ever ask the question, what would happen if Suave were an arsonist? Well, there you have it there, your telephone relationship with a charming convict. Um, told the story pretty well. He had an interesting take on it, you know, having that connection. And even though it was an older story, it's still worth telling. It was fine. I didn't care for the sound effects and the court recreations. We've heard that so many times in other podcasts, and it's just really hokey. It didn't need it. But overall, I'm still going thumbs up. Yeah, I'm I'm like with Toby. I'm a thumb sideways on this. Um, it could have been really good. Um, all the failures here were in editing and production. The material is very strong. It was ma- basically made backwards. They basically tried to make a serialized story from beginning to end when that's not where the interesting stuff is. The more interesting stuff is from the inside out. The interesting stuff is we have basically here a sociopathic arsonist who's known to the world and what's, you know, inside of his brain and what he did to his family and the consequences of what he did. The fact that he wrote this fucking crazy book is the interesting stuff. Uh, The fact that you happen to have tape of him from 20 years ago is the icing. It's not the cake. And that's the foundation on which the building was built. I don't think that that is the foundation on which this podcast should have been built. And I know that that I I just know it because I've been pitched so many things like this. I know that that's how this was pitched. And so I know that that's how this was built. But given the, the fantastic tape that I heard later from that other amazing arson investigator dude and all the other guys who worked with this guy and 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 the and the ex-wife and his kids like it just could have been built so much better so i can't give it a thumbs down like it's not a bad podcast like i'm almost up but i got to give it sideways just because it could have been so much better you know what i think to jump back in like one tiny thing that could have made it different. Not the typewriter sounds taking those. No, out. I mean if you had all this tape with <laughs> Yeah, right. If you had all this tape with John Orr, couldn't it have been structured a little more like West Cork, where John Orr sounds like any other character in it yes. and then then yes. it's a surprise that he's the suspect. Well, they they tried to do that, but it didn't work. It didn't because work I don't think he was there as present as some of the other investigators. Well, anyway, anyway, uh, I think there's a lot of different. We ways. voted. We voted. There's a lot of different ways it could have been structured to make it better. Yeah. Uh, and and also you had to fucking take out that typewriter bullshit. It was so <laughs> stupid. Anyway, I have a typewriter on my little Exeter Life podcast, but then it turns into fun music. No, listen. The typewriter can be It's wrong fine, in this episode. But also, what year was this book written? 90. 91. It was 100% not written on a manual typewriter. 100%. It was either a brother word processor. <laughs> and it was probably done like a like one of those printers. Dot with matrix the printer. Dot matrix printer. I mean, like a also, John was a young man at the time he wrote this book. He did not sound like an 80-year-old uh, Fritz Weatherby type reader. <laughs> anyway, thumb sideways for me. That is going to be a fucking obscure, obscure <laughs> reference. People can look it up. <laughs> Thumbs sideways. Chapter one. Wafer welcomes you to the neighborhood. Our hero, Titus Burgess, ambled down the stylish street of an enchanting utopia. A woman waved from a chic lounger. Welcome to the neighborhood, she said, where Wafer helps everyone create a home they love. Titus stared in awe. Bohemian Boulevard, Trendsetter Terrace, Mid-Century Circle. Titus, hmm? you're reading the Wayfair catalog. 
Oh, you'll love Chapter 2. Wayfair's fast and free shipping saves a potluck. Wayfair, every style, every home. Kevin, here we are in the business section business of the podcast. Business section. Light that fire. Um, so, on the after show, let me talk about what it's going to be. No, let me tell you. It's going to be Lara Bricker's cocaine-fueled birthday party <laughs> Yeah. on our after show tonight. She's full of beans tonight, huh? The 80s. Everything that is old is new again. Listen, before yeah. we started taping the show tonight, we had to pull Laura down from the <laughs> rafters. We're going to let her go in the after show tonight. Laura's going to be taking a nap by the time the after show starts. Oh no, I'm, I'm totally quilt hopes. And some etymological research on the name Randy is also going to be in the after show. Maybe. Kevin Flynn, what else is going to happen? We're going to talk a little bit about the four of us getting together for Laura's book launch party, her other party this week. Also going to get some commentary on what we think about Bones discovered in New Hampshire's White Mountains. Oh, yeah. What do we think? Could they be related to a very famous missing persons case? Also on Patreon, we're going to have a new episode coming up of Married with Podcast. Oh, really? Yeah. If you join Patreon at the Brickter scale level, not only do you get the Leave it to Bricker podcast, but you also get access to a special Facebook group. Laura, tell us about that. This is the Facebook group for rage walking and kind of staying active during the COVID times. And also, it's a place where I do share cat videos. Everybody loves a good cat video. Not everyone, but all right. That's okay. Kevin loves cats. Oh, my God. (laughs) Um, But the Brichter Scale is a great community. We have a lot of people that have been in there for a long time. And, I mean, it's all over the place. It's It's been a very supportive place, I've found, for me personally, during um, the last 18 months of living during a pandemic. And also, in the Brichter Scale podcast, in Leave it to Bricker, we're going to hear from the next generation of the Crime Writers on Kids in the oh. next Leave it to Bricker. So get ready, and then you can all send me your sympathies. By the way, Brickter scale level, it's an extra dollar. It's 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 and it's our most popular level, so it's really worth it. It's totally worth it. Also coming up on these are their stories this week. We have the episode from SVU involving Glasgow Man oh, based on the Slender Man. Case. Such a good episode. And uh, our guest is Ronald Young Jr. from the, the Solvable Podcast. He's the best. Just want to also remind people to sign up for the free Crime Writers On newsletter. Go to crimewriterson.com. The sign up is right at the top. You get all sorts of neat stuff and uh, opportunities to purchase really goofy merchandise like the Crime Writers On leggings. I bought them. Really? They're so ugly, I bought I, They can't be any worse than the Lulu Row ones, right? They're crime writers low. I totally bought them. So I bought them because... I so, can't wait till they come. By the way, I know they're probably way better quality than Lulu Row because our like merch provider is uh, Threadless. Hopefully they don't and smell like freaking farts. Great. Threadless is great, by the yeah. way. But I did buy them and because you made them so ugly with the crime writer logo <laughs> all over them. Like I, I did the size thing and it was like, it was like, do your size. And it was like, I'm a small, but I'm like, no, I'm going to get a large. Because I know it's going to be super stretched out and weird, and I didn't want to have that Lula Row situation with the logo coming out of my crotch situation. Yeah, I cannot wait to model them for the newsletter. Sign up for our newsletter, and you will see me model those leggings in a future edition. All right. So, Kevin, before we wrap up the business section, do we have any Patreon patron saints of the week this week? Our Patreon patron saints are Andrew Jeeves and Dakota Eaton. Bless you. Should we wrap up the business section, Kevin? Yeah, don't light that fire. I'm going to go ahead and fade out that music now. Moving on. This is Jeff! 
In January 2011, Jessica found her twin scooter abandoned on the road, then began a desperate search across western France for Letitia. The girls' lives had already been fraught from the violent relationship of their birth parents to the foster home where life was not as it seemed. The investigation led police to an older man seen with a teenager the night of her disappearance. But if he's in custody, where's Leticia? The six-part series, Leticia, is a dramatic adaptation of the true crime case that gripped France. This French-language TV series is now on HBO and is directed by Academy Award winner Jean-Xavier de Lestrade, the documentarian behind my all-time favorite documentary, The Staircase. Leticia focuses on her troubled past, the effect on her twin sister, the search for evidence, and the leaders who used the crime for their own political ends. Now, we are going to be talking about plot points for the first three episodes of Leticia. So to remain spoiler-free, go to the estimated time code in our show notes to hear our thumbs-up or thumbs-down reviews. So, Toby, I found myself wondering a lot about pacing of the series because in the first episode, we see the sort of setup for her disappearance. She disappears, and then we kind of find out a lot that happened to her right before she disappears, and then we kind of find out what happened to her and who did it. And I found myself wondering what's going to happen in the rest of the series. And I thought the pacing of that was a little bit odd. And I was wondering, like, what is up here with this series? I don't know. How how did you feel about how this was set up and how it's kind of being laid out for us? Yeah. So it, it sort of starts off with this, you know, sort of prequel or whatever, like a, a short scene where Letitia shows up late and, you know, her foster father seems kind of ominous and she's upset. And then suddenly her scooter is like three months later and her, they, her scooter's there and she's missing. And then like in like super rapid succession, you find out that she's had sex with a boy who's not her boyfriend. That She said something in her diary about she's not the only person telling lies you find out that she's texting all sorts of boys. You find that there's a boy who thinks that he's her boyfriend, but seems completely sort of out of the loop on everything that's going on and on and on and on. It's like just one thing after another, and none of it really has anything to do with actual investigation. It's just thing after thing after thing of these facts. And so, yeah, it's, I'm like, oh my God, there's going to be like five more episodes of this, just like reveal after reveal after reveal which doesn't turn out to be the case, but it is like, there's all these like strands that you're wondering, like, how is this all going to go? And what it turns out is at least through episode three, they drop about two thirds of them. Like a bunch of the characters kind of just drop off the face of the earth. And it really focuses on the murderer and a few other people. Uh, But like the boyfriend, like, I don't think you ever see him again, as far as we've gone. So it's weird. It seems like it's in a huge rush. So you're getting all these pieces of information about people that you don't know anything about, really. In my mind, it just really, really needed to slow way, way down so you could get it sort of some purchase on who these people were before it was like, she's having sex with him and not with him. And she's texting these guys because it doesn't make any sense because you don't know who they are. Now, Laura, there are really a couple of stories happening here. I mean, I, I'm i counting really four major stories. There's a story of the murder investigation and police and Tony's incarceration and all of the, the stuff happening around that. There's the backstory around the twins growing up and the incredibly 
violent, abusive relationship their dad had with their mother and, and sort of those flashbacks. And then there's kind of the mystery of whatever's going on with their relationship with their foster parents. So there's like four big threads. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I find myself, strangely, uh, even though Letitia was murdered by Tony, who's maybe the most creepy character I've seen on television in a long time. Just going to say, if I was going to like rebel and go off with a man for the night, I would have found someone better looking to kill me. That being said... The father and and that, but that thread of the incredibly like violent past, Mm -hmm. that storyline is so disturbing to me. And you sent me a note about that and the portrayal of the dad. What are we supposed to think of this guy? Because we see what he did to the mom. We see what he did to the girls. And we also see him in the present when his daughter is dead, playing the role of the grieving dad. Like that is like... Is it complicated? Are we supposed to feel something for him? Like, do you find yourself like wondering, like having those same questions that I'm having? Yeah, absolutely. I think the father for me was the most sort of confounding character in this entire series in the way that they portrayed him. Because we see some scenes that I will say are probably some of the most raw. You know, we have these young twins. And I have to say, whoever the little actresses are that played the young twins did a phenomenal job. So we'll see the young twins like huddling together in a bedroom. And then on the other side of the door is the mother in this extremely brutal rape that we then later see the mother like walking down the street in a shirt, like shake. I mean, that was a scene that was, it was visceral to watch that scene. And you and you hear, you see and hear this father just you know, the, as soon as the mother wants, you know, he's like, you're my wife, you know, and then he just basically like. Good French accent. That was my Texas accent. <laughs> um, but you're my anyway, wife. You're my wife. Um, but, you know, so we see the father in these scenes where his temper is like hair trigger. Like he's one moment he's like kissing the girls and like tucking them into bed. And the next moment he's like beating the mother's head off the wall and like brutally raping her. And I I guess I didn't really come away yet. Uh, We're only three episodes in knowing how I'm actually going to feel about this guy because we see him when Leticia is missing and then confirmed dead and he's, he's sincerely upset. But then we see these scenes where he stalks their social worker who is one person who actually advocated for the twins and it's kind of frightening. But I also at the same time, I think what that's showing me is this is a very complex character because you, you definitely feel like these are some kids who fell through the cracks. And when you see a character like that where you yourself watching it aren't really sure where to put them on the scale of danger or not danger, um, you know, I, I think maybe they're doing that to try to show you how difficult it was because you do feel like these kids, who the hell was looking out for them, you know? And you're like, why didn't somebody stop this before it got to this point? I think this is really supposed to be about the French criminal justice system, right? Because the two parallel threads here are that the dad committed this incredibly brutal crime and then got to have custody of these kids, the twins, who then fell through the cracks and ended up with these foster parents who we still don't know, like, what the secret is there. There clearly is something because that's been hinted at. I know, but... But there clearly is something there. Yes. So the kids were put with this guy who we saw brutally rape their mother 
And then we also saw the French criminal justice system, this guy, Tony, who is fucking terrifying and who, by the way, also fell through the cracks. We saw him fall through the cracks Mm -hmm. in his own horrible parental situation. So that to me is the common thread here is that, you know, it's kind of the indictment of the criminal justice and social safety net in France, right? Yeah. Kevin, am I am I miss you since you have obviously no. Wikipedia'd this. <laughs> am I is that am I getting this right? Yeah, I mean I think that's one way of looking at like what the uh like the, the filmmakers trying to accomplish. The dad sucks. Tony sucks. But if they're the st- and the foster the, father but, sucks, you don't the, know how yet though. But, but the he state does. let them out, and that is the problem. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think there is a lot here to talk about, and what we will get to, they will get to in the final three episodes, is the political fallout. How the president of France used this case to indict his political enemies about how the system is run, and uh, I haven't gotten that far. Sounds like there's a lot. That he would, is probably right about, that the social safety net did not work for these folks. But what I, what I find interesting about the show is how much it has in common with The Investigation, which was the Danish miniseries that we watched a couple of months ago. Not just that there's similarities with the crime, where the victim's body was um, dismembered and then thrown in the water, and because... Parts were missing. It made it hard to determine a cause of death and et cetera, et cetera. But also because we see HBO doing a lot of this now, combing the world to pick up the best or what they believe is to be be the best true crime content from other parts of the globe. And, you know, unlike like Netflix, which does a thing where they find something in a foreign language and they do a simultaneous release, HBO just kind of goes, yeah, this is something from... 2019, it was big in France, and now we're going to present it mm. with subtitles, which is, I think is kind of daring. It's really smart. And we can probably admit, yeah, it's a result of the pandemic and the problems with creating new content in the environment. But, you know, I think it's um, I think overall it's working. So, Toby, I want to talk about the performances here because you made a note and we've talked about it a couple of times the sort of terrifying uh, presence of Tony, the killer. Um Can you just talk about him as a character and how he's portrayed here? Because we see him both as a kid and as an adult. I think one of the most frightening scenes for me is when he goes into that parking lot to try to get a guy who basically just owes him money or whatever to help him, I don't know, casually throw the body that he's dismembered that happens to be in the trunk of his hatch back into the river and, you know, as if... I don't know, or some trash he pulled out of his pantry and just needed to get, like, you know, like, I need to burn, for instance, throw away, like, an old toaster oven that I have, and I don't know how, like, my garbage guy won't take it away. I find him to be, like, incredibly chilling as an actor in this part. Like, what do you think of that performance and just the performances in general in this film? I thought his performance is great. He sort of comes off to me, although he's clearly crazy and a bad guy, he comes off as being fairly believable. You can kind of see the charming side to him, which also has this like more than a hint of menace when he's, I don't know what you would call it, but sort of, it's not really seducing, but sort of getting to know Laetitia and they're walking down the beach and smoking a joint and, and he's being like kind of charming, but on the other hand, he's also being like really controlling already. Like, if they seem like they've only known each other for about 10 minutes, 
so I, I thought like if I was going to be doing a, a movie or a show or something and I needed some guy to be just completely off his rocker, I would a hundred percent find this actor. Yeah. <laughs> no Morgenstein is his name. Yes. I would love to see him like in a romantic comedy or something. No, you it's wouldn't. hard for me to picture. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, no. So the rest of the actors, I guess it was fine. Like I, I didn't really, I have to say, I, I didn't really like this very much for a bunch of reasons. And I guess maybe there's, more to come that might make it better but it's just kind of weird in that there's no real investigation and that was when you were saying it's like um that scandinavian one we we watched the investigation that one seemed like a real investigation this one's sort of like like people just kind of show up and conveniently tell them things that they need to know like they talked to one of his old girlfriends she's like oh yeah you know by the way he used to go to this really remote lake in the middle of nowhere and you might just want to check there they're like all right we'll send some divers in oh yeah there's the body you know it's just that kind of thing like is there any like deductions or like finding of clues that has happened in this it just doesn't seem like it's been there it's been this sort of collection of people telling them what they need to know or them finding what they need to know immediately which may be the way it actually happened but it doesn't make for like super compelling like procedural stuff. So you really have to lean on the stories, like the backstory, which again, I guess they're trying to make a larger point, but all this stuff to me just kind of felt like it was borrowed from other stuff that I'd seen before and kind of patched together to make these different points. And I don't know, I was just watching it. I'm like, when is this going to start being different Hmm. than, than other stuff? Yes, but Toby, the cop, gets to stay in a mobile home because he can't be with his family during the investigation because he's investigating so hard. And then I thought for a minute, like, that guy who's, like, sort of ha- hanging out with the beer while he's talking to his wife, I'm like, does this guy have, like, a lover? Like, in this, in this, like, is that what's going on here? And then there was another guy in the cast. So I'm like, oh, okay, no, this is the crew. That was so weird. Like, what kind of police department is using, like, the um, temporary structure that sometimes schools use when they need more classrooms? And they've got like an 18-year-old judge who seems to be running the whole show. Yeah. It's like the guy is like so young. Yes. I assume that judges in France have a different role to play than judges here. I mean, he's like a prosecutor. I actually, a, but a couple of things yeah. I have learned about France from this. One is I have learned, and I looked it up, and it is true, that you can because service, like being a waiter or waitress is a profession in France, and the way it is, it's not part of like, the service industry in France is more professional. So she was in college to become a waitress, You're in college to be a waitress because the service industry in France is a profession on a level that it is not a profession here, as it should be, Mm. by the way, and uh, so that's the thing that I learned about France from watching this. Um, So Kevin, the narrative focus in the victims' lives here is very different than it is in typical American films. It's not about sort of like... It's richer. It's not about like, what a wonderful person she lit up a room right it's sort of more about the darker side of the victim's life right well sometimes the victim is just sort of this convenient catalyst for the procedural to get things going along and so by the time we get to their death it's like oh their death was a tragedy well it seems like in this case their whole life is a tragedy right about the twins having been you know in in foster care we see them at whatever, like four months and three years old and nine years old and stuff like that and telling their whole story through the system, I think that's what the kind of story that they actually want to tell is to tell the lives of these twin girls. And we still have to find out what the effect is on Jessica, the twin sister, because she is still... she The people who are still in the frame are there for a reason. And the director wants them there. I have a question for the panel. Did you notice that 
they only refer to her as Letitia and never by her last name. Yes. Even in sort of like the recreated news reports, the search for Letitia, is it Letitia? I'm sorry if I'm saying it wrong. It's We're just, all saying it wrong, by the way. That is a deliberate choice by the director. I wonder, in the, in the investigation, they did not use the killer's name. It was a very conspicuous choice to work the way around that. I wonder what that's about. It's definitely an artistic choice to not use her last name and just her first name. I don't know what it says, though. I have a theory. You have a theory. Okay. I actually think it has something to do with just, like, European sensibilities about privacy. I don't know. I, I disagree, but... But even artistic choices can be influenced sure. by th- feelings sure. about then, privacy. Then, yeah, that, it's know. weird to me. But it's it's weird because it takes you out of it, right? Yeah. Except for that detail, all the, like, fake news shots and stuff. Well, A, I think some of them are real news shots they and are. just repurposing for yeah. this. But even the ones that are kind of, you know, where they're using her name and stuff, everything seems pretty spot on, except for the fact they don't say her last name. It's just like Laetitia. You think they're trying to erase the family name? That's like the artistic decision is to erase the family name because it's she has no family. She never had a family. I mean, what do you think? I guess I feel like there's no answer that you could give me which would make it seem worth it. <laughs> you know, as a fiction writer, one of the things you look at, is there something you're putting in here that's going to break the spell for people, right? Is there going to be something that, that causes people to kind of jerk out of this world you're trying to create and, and ensconce them in? And I felt like that was the kind of thing that kind of does it. It's like, why the, why don't they just say the last name like they normally would? Like, what? why is that? I, I just found it annoying, but... Maybe he's got some idea I haven't thought of, which will, you know, make me weep or something for... He does have an Academy Award, so we probably should not... for a documentary. Yeah. He also made my all-time favorite thing that I've ever watched, so... Yeah. I give him a pass. Yeah, I think that was good. All right. Well, I think we should do what we do. Let's let our listeners know, should they check out Letitia on HBO? Laura Bricker, what do you think? Thumbs up or thumbs down for Letitia on HBO and HBO Max? I'm kind of conflicted on the show. Um, first off, I would like to say, like, thank you, stupid French killer man for ruining my joy of scooters by <laughs> setting a horrible murder on a scooter and then showing it in the opening credits every time. The thing about this is it, it took me a while to adjust to the pacing of this. And at first I thought, oh, gosh, I haven't watched like a subtitled show in a while. And I'm trying to like scroll Twitter and also watch it at the same time. And that's what the issue is. But then it became clear to me it was kind of a pacing issue. And I actually had to go and restart the series after I was about an episode and a half in so I could pick up what had happened. But it was a pacing issue. And I don't know if it was like a deliberate pacing issue, uh, but they were jumping back and forth in timelines. And I thought this was a really tragic, heartbreaking story. But the way that it was told was really hard for me to initially kind of latch onto that because the timelines were all over, the pacing was really slow. And and I'm sure everybody in France already knows about this case. And and I really, really wanted to like this because I'm like, oh my gosh, this guy made the staircase. And the staircase is one of the, I, I, I earlier today was wearing my like the owl did it shirt um, in honor of Toby. Um, <laughs> it's offensive. Yeah, I know. So <laughs> he did though, he did do it though. I don't know. This is like a, a weak thumb sideways for me because I feel like if you can sit there and watch this for the first three episodes, the case itself is 
really tragic. You know, it's a case of a breakdown of the system. It's a case of these sisters who, from like the earliest point of their life to the end of their life, are victims of male violence and sexual violence in a way that is really horrific. But I just, the, the way that it was told was not something that I found easy to follow. So I'm going thumb sideways. Toby Ball. I, I don't think this is very good. You know, I think you guys have made the best case for like what is good about it. But this is, it just seems like it's, it's like a bunch of stuff I've seen before kind of pasted together into things. There's some stuff that's like actually kind of annoying. The fact that the sort of misogynist killer is shown as having a mom who rejected him. That just seems lazy and sort of wrong to put it in that simple terms, like blaming the mother. So I, you know, it's not the worst, but I didn't think it was good. I don't really know with the exception of the guy who plays the killer, who is freaking amazing. And I would give that guy every award. Uh, But the rest of it I thought was pretty, was pretty bad. So I'm a thumbs down. Kevin Flynn. I'm going to go thumbs up. No, it's not as good as The Staircase, but I think what sets this apart is that Lestrade is making a larger comment about society in France by not just looking at the disappearance and what happens to Leticia, but also about her life and the life of her sister and about what happens to those two beyond the case. So I'm going to say, look, get... Not necessarily fantastic, and if you don't like, you know, reading uh, subtitles, and you're not going to enjoy this, but I think it has a little something more, and so I'm going thumbs up. Yeah, um, thumbs up. I mean, I liked it. I'm going to keep watching it. I'm surprised at how much I am enjoying it, because I agree with most of Toby and Lars' criticism of it. However, I like a good European crime drama, and... There's enough here that's compelling for me, especially kind of around the systemic stuff. I think the performances are good. I, unlike Kevin and Laura, have not Wikipedia'd the whole thing. So me I either. don't know anything about the case. I don't know. I, I like European stuff. So I'm kind of biased. So thumbs up for me. That's all I'm going to say about it. Chapter one Wayfair welcomes you to the Waberhood. Our hero, Titus Burgess, Ambled down the stylish street of an enchanting utopia. A woman waved from a chic lounger. Welcome to the Waverhood, she said, where Wayfair helps everyone create a home they love. Titus stared in awe. Bohemian Boulevard, Trendsetter Terrace, Mid-Century Circle. Titus, hmm? you're reading the Wayfair catalog. Oh, you'll love chapter two. Wayfair's fast and free shipping saves a potluck. Wayfair, every style, every home. Now it's time for my favorite part of the podcast, a little something I like to call the The crime crime of of the week. The The Illinois State Police says it just solved a missing persons case, as in whoever it was who lost their dentures at the state fair. Authorities say the abandoned chompers were discovered in the fair's conservation world section. They were turned over to a trooper by some we assumed grossed out fairgoers. Before the trooper started sizing up suspects Cinderella style, the dentures owner came forward and made a gummy identification. Panel, this Illinois state trooper went above and beyond to solve the case of the detached dentures. How should he be commended? Laura Bricker, what do you think? 
Um, I'm going to go with he gets like a one-year free cavity pass so that he doesn't have to get dentures so that somebody else doesn't have to find them. And he gets a bag of candy. Oh, I'll tell you about how do you think the state trooper should be commended for pairing this guy up with his lost dentures? Um, I don't know. <laughs> does one get does one get a commendation for this uh how about some is dentine is that the gum you can chew when you have dentures yes it right. is Kevin, dentine. what do you think kevin uh he should be awarded the fixident gold medal and get a big smile i think he should be awarded a pack of trident the gum that four out of five dentists recommend for their patients who chew gum who was that fifth fucking dentist? That's who I've always wanted to know. That is that out. still true after all these years? I don't know. I don't Nobody's know. innovated? <laughs> time time to get on that survey. I don't know. <laughs> all right, Laura Bricker, we should probably end the podcast. Before we do, do we have a cat of the week this week? Rebecca, we have yes. a dog of the week this week. It is about time. Woof. Is it the one who's been trying to break into the studio this entire time we've been recording this oh. podcast? Oh, my God. I would like to say I really appreciate it. Rebecca remained totally immobile as her dog licked her entire face. Yes. And then just very delicately wiped her face off afterwards. It is the first time that we've actually had a dog uh, break in. In these six years or seven years of making the show, we had a dog break into the studio. Yeah. And uh, physically put his face on my face while we've been recording a show. It was a whole new side to Rebecca. But anyway, so this week, I, I had like three dogs of the week this week, but I have to say it's my birthday today and our longtime listener, huge supporter, Angela Buster. How could you not on your birthday have dog of the week, a dog that somebody is naming after a character in your book? Nice. So this comes from Angela, longtime listener, um, amazing foster dog mom. And also she's an amazing caregiver. She takes care of her parents. So and a I wonderful love human being, a wonderful human being. She is. I mean, I know I've been a caregiver. So when I see everything that Angela is doing, I'm, I'm always very, I, I understand. So she says, uh, meet Gladys, the nice. newest rescue to the Zuzu, which is the rescue. And my foster dog, she is 10 years old, 12 pounds and blind. I am fostering because I have two dogs that have impaired sight and one that is blind as she recently had surgery to remove an eye and had cataracts. The thing to know about blind dogs is as soon as they have a lay of the land, they are fine. This little girl will be adopted by a loving family, and I'm looking forward to helping them adjust to their space. I will share more pictures of Miss Gladys after I pick her up. I bet you will love her. And she says, I think this dog has seen some things, which is nice. Gladys, my Gladys had seen something. So I, I kind of, if, if Gladys wasn't across the country, she might be leaving at my house right now. But uh, good job, Angela. We look forward to more updates on Miss Gladys. I'm just going to say Angela Buster has done some very nice things for me personally. So I really appreciate you picking her dog to be dog of the week. Laura Bricker, if folks want to reach out to you to submit their cats, dogs, turtles, iguanas, emus, any kind of animal to be pet of the week, whether or not it's something that belongs to them or that they've seen along the way. How can they find you? Of course, they can also email us at crimewriterson at gmail.com. But if they want to reach out to you, like say on Twitter, how can they find mm -hmm. you there? They can find me at Laura Bricker on Twitter and they can find me at Laura Bricker author on Facebook. And oh my God, at Laura Bricker author on Facebook. That's I new. tried tagging Laura in a Facebook post and that came up. Nice. It's thanks to those paid ads I did. <laughs> at Laura Bricker Author. Toby Ball, folks want to reach out to you on Twitter. How can they find you? 
at Toby Ball NH. Kevin Flynn, where are you on the tweets? I'm at Kevin P. Flynn. And if you want to follow me on Twitter or Instagram, you can find me at Reb Lavoy. You can also follow the show on Twitter at Crime Writers On. And I really do encourage you to join our incredible community in our official Crime Writers On Facebook group. Just search for it. Support the show at patreon.com slash partners in crime media. You'll get the Crime Writers On after show, Married with Podcast, Laura Bricker's Leave it to Bricker podcast, and Toby Ball's Deep Dive Book Club podcast. Our theme song was composed and performed by Ty Gibbons. Our line editor is the very handsome and well-read Olivia Burdett. The executive producer of this fine program is Kevin Flynn. That's me. This show was recorded in the yoga loft above the bodega in Bay St. Louis, Mississippi studio, otherwise known as Studio C, the closet in our New Hampshire basement where we ask why flammable and inflammable mean exactly the same thing. Why is that? On behalf of all the crime writers, Thanks so much for listening. We will catch you later. And lastly, we're going to get reaction to a Hollywood actress who was stabbed. Really? Yeah, Reese. I don't know anything about that. No, with a knife. What are you talking about? (laughs) What are you even talking about? (laughs) Kevin, Kevin, come back to us. Kevin. Reese, Toby, what did you say? Reese Witherspoon? No, with a knife. (laughs) Oh. oh, I'm sorry. Forget the spoon. deep dive. No, it's like it's a, it's a with her with her spoon, with her spoon. No, with a knife. Didn't stab with a spoon. Stabbed it with a knife. I don't know. With her spoon. About. Oh, fine. Okay, I guess that's the outtake because it's not funny. It's a play on words. Partners in crime media. Chapter 1, Wayfair welcomes you to the Waberhood. Our hero, Titus Burgess, ambled down the stylish street of an enchanting utopia. A woman waved from a chic lounger. Welcome to the Waberhood, she said, where Wayfair helps everyone create a home they love. Titus stared in awe. Bohemian Boulevard, Trinsetter Terrace, Mid-Century Circle. Titus, hmm? you're reading the Wayfair catalog. Oh, you'll love Chapter 2. Wayfair's fast and free shipping saves a potluck. Wayfair, every style, every home.